Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Comment. After 2019's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, we were eagerly awaiting Celine Siama's next feature. Her new film, Petite Mama, is now finally in theaters, and it's something of a surprise. A sweet, magical realist story about a little girl who meets and befriends a younger version of her grieving mother. It's a more modest film than the swooning period romance of Portrait, but Petite Mama is just as profound in its play with gender roles and women's inner worlds. As Amy Taubin writes in an essay in this week's film comment letter, all of Siyama's films contain autobiographical elements, but none are as revealing as Petite Maman's portrait of the filmmaker as a fledgling tomboy writer-slash-director, already eager to claim all roles on screen and off that only have been bestowed on men. We sat down with the director over Zoom to dig into those autobiographical elements, the film's deceptive simplicity, Siyama's love of classic children's films, and much more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We just wanted to start by asking, you know, you have made films with children many times in your career. In fact, almost all of the films before Portrait of a Lady were about youth. And I read that the idea for Petite Mama actually came when you were attending an award ceremony for a film that you wrote for children, uh, My Life as a Courgette. And I was wondering how that transition from making movies about kids, but not necessarily for kids, to making a movie for kids, how that transition maybe influenced Petite Mama. Well, yes, the, the, the writing My Life as a Zucchini really changed uh, the way I write for Petite Maman, but also for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Because um, for, the, for the first time, uh, I was writing officially for kids. Whereas, you know, for, with Tomboy, I, I really wanted the film to be kid compatible and that he could watch it, but it wasn't, you know, fully designed for them. Whereas um, my life as a, as a, as a zucchini, I, all the adaptation process, because it's, it's, it's from a book, was asking myself, how do I make this for kids? And what does it mean making it for kids? Uh, because the, the first scene of the book is about a kid uh, killing his mother with a gun. That was written like that. So when I started adapting the book, I spent like two weeks asking myself like, how do I do that first scene? How do I tell about alcoholism, abuse, isolation, uh, and, and that it would end with a mother dying and that you wouldn't feel like, the, it would feel like, okay, I'm gonna sit through this with my kid. <laughs> and well, it then got me also much more straightforward with emotions in the dialogue for the first time. And this two way of thinking, one way of how do you make a political safe space for fiction, which is writing for kids and making a political safe space by that. I mean, not, it's not about saying things that are not dangerous. It's really about building a space of trust so that the viewer, in that case, the kid know that they can take the risk. It's really about that they feel that the language of the film, the language of cinema is taking them seriously. 
So sometimes it can mean, you know, that's, that's because writing for kids really made me also more radical in a way, because I really thought of them as the most contemporary audience you can get. They don't have like this whole cultural background of it's about cinema. Um, so you can, it means you can try new ideas. There'll be appetite, there'll be a response, an honest response to it. Uh, so it's a high pressure, it's, it's really high pressure, but it really made, you, made me think about really what I expected from, from cinema and what I expected from cinema as a kid. And yeah, also made me write dialogues that were more straightforward and, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire really benefited from both this reflection, I must say. So did you return to these films that you thought that affected you as a child that really that stuck with you? Or did you try to maybe kind of evoke the memory of those films that exist that you have today? Because I see this film as kind of a distillation of ideas of great of children's films that I have now that I've carried with me to my adulthood in, in a way. I must say that I watch a lot of kids film today and that most of my favorite of the year are always I mean, this year it's Turning Red, uh, The Mitchells vs. The Machines. Uh, I'm a, I think Inside Out is one of the greatest scripts ever written. So I'm a big fan of Miyazaki. Petite Maman is very close also in the heart to The Children Wolf by Mamoru Osoda, which is an anime that has less than 10 years old, you know. So once more with kids, it's about the contemporary first. It's not about, uh, you know, digging into history of cinema is then it's like part of the job. And it's also it's also one of the beauty of, of writing for cinema is that, you know, it's an art that is officially full of fetishism. So you can really go and, and connect to that feeling without uh, being lazy in a way. That's still work, you know. And I must say, I really thought about Penny Marshall's big, with Tom Hanks. It's the first film that I went to see at the cinema with a friend. I don't remember exactly what was the year. I think it was 88 or 87. So I might've been like eight or nine. And there's, it's, for, it's magic realism, like Petite Maman. It's, it's incredibly bold and I, some would say even shocking. I remember being, that. I remember finding it kind of weird, the relationship he has with the, woman, with the adult woman. Yeah. Very strange it's, it's, thing part of the movie. <laughs> even as a child i was like this is yeah but i remember feeling weird about it but i remember feeling fully respected by the film as a kid like wow this is taking childhood seriously you know you you felt like a full individual because that's that's what what the film was about was was it what if kids would participate more in society give their ideas about their toys give the, get, get, give their input to society so you know what if their citizenship was there. And of course, we think about the love story, but it was mostly about that. It was being very successful. And then he became, became like dumb. And so it was fully metaphorical about how, yeah, how kids weren't involved, like the, the fantasy of being more involved in the society. That's, that was kind of, a, that's the superhero life of a kid is like being an adult, you know. That was also, yeah, one of the reference when I was thinking about what kind of feeling I wanted to give to a kid, thinking about how I felt in the cinema as a kid. Um, and of course, also Spielberg's film that really, you know, E.T. was, I think, the first time that I actually felt that someone was trying to give me emotions 
rather than me having emotions in front of things. So it's like, okay, there's a director, there's, there's a form of God in the film that wants you to, to, to care and to feel something. So yeah, I mean, great cinema for kids is a great education for cinema in general. I was wondering how you write dialogue for kids because what is really striking about Petite Mama is the children really talk like children, which it just feels very unique in movies. I mean, and they say some things that for a second you think, would a child say this? And then you think, no, actually children talk like this all the time. They just don't talk like this in movies. Uh, but children are actually very literal. You know, they can be very direct. And both the characters in Petite Mama just say these casually profound things that also feel real for a child to observe. Well, yeah, I, I think once more, like I find that I don't find that very difficult to write, I must say. I am just trying to give them this full voice, which means to write, to write very plain dialogue, very, I don't know if maybe I'm gonna mismatch the world, I'm gonna have wrong, I'm gonna be French, uh, really French here. But um, yeah, that it's, uh, I'm not trying to sound like a kid. I'm just always, I'm, I really feel like I'm writing exactly the same for an adult for, or for, a kid, for instance, it really depends on like, for instance, on Portrait of Lady on Fire, I didn't feel like I was writing for adults. I felt like I was writing in a more with, with, a, with a side of literature because the genre of the film allowed me that. And um, with Petite Maman, I felt the genre of the film, which was, which is a mellow, mellow intimate time traveling definitely also allowed me to, to, to have that kind of dialogue. So it's, it's, it's really about the language of the film each time. And I tend to write the characters as uh, uh, elements of the film. They don't, I don't have at all an, uh, a writing that is character driven. It's, it's and for me, they really don't exist. They have like no backstory. And especially in this film, as it was dealing with family and that I wanted the film to, to feel very, to be welcoming of all stories of people watching it. It's very, there's very few details about who these people are in a way. So I'm not even trying to, to sign the way they would talk. And it's really freeing in a way. I really recommend trying to write dialogues as um, characters trying to tell the truth. And, you know, since also I'm trying to get rid of uh, the tension of conflict driving scenes or, or interaction with characters, once you start trying not to do that, it really brings some new opportunities of dialogue also. That's, a, that's something we, got, we wanted to talk about a little bit, this idea that you have of extracting conflict from the story as the narrative engine and having these agreements be the source of that motion forward in the story. Can you talk a little bit about the development of this idea, maybe a little bit, and how where where it came from, and um, maybe how you, how you wove it into the the writing of this particular story? Well, it really, I think it really became something that I was aware of, that I would could speak of, that I could formulate like that in the process in the process of writing Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Whereas, because I really tried to. As it was a love story, as because I was thinking of a love dynamic and, and I was thinking about the politics of, of a love dynamic on screen. And it like it, it didn't feel like getting rid of conflict. It felt also like 
Yeah, it felt like an, another pol politics of love. So it wasn't something that I was expanding generally on, on writing films. It was really specific to this one that I would try to do that all the way. The portrait of a lady or? Yeah, portrait of a lady on right. fire. And doing that, I, I experienced a, a, a bigger pleasure doing the film before. And, and so I, I, I look back and, and thought, okay, I, when I was dealing with violence and conflict, I felt like it was something that I had to go through and I felt really bad. And, and you know, and you're taught about that feeling bad is maybe feeling alive or whatever sh stupid thing we, we pressure and under the pressure of repeating something so that they would belong or I don't know. So I just also felt, and I decided to, to follow what I felt. That's also, you know, when, so when I'm asked by students in cinema or whatever, like, how do you, how do you know something is good? I'm really like always trying to suggest, you have to trust how you feel. Like if you feel bad writing something and you don't be fooled by the fact that it's just like, oh, but it's because it's sad or because it's violent. It's because, no, it's, 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 it's something. It's moving against your own self. Yeah. And it's, I, I don't, I mean, you can, you can definitely create great stuff like that. It's not about that. It's just that discovering that feeling and was really willing to explore it. Well, it's interesting that it kind of is a theme of of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, as you said, right? Like this is kind of what the movie is about. It's two characters reaching this kind of like radical reciprocity and equality. And I think it's because it's, I think, each film is like a social contract. And in mine, the social contract is taken by the two characters officially uh, in front of you. It's not hidden. The social contract isn't hidden. It's part of the tension. The tension is will the social contract, what will this social contract bring and for how long? And each time it's as it's uh, always character at the margin, this social contract is a form of utopia. I'd rather make it a utopia than five days of hell because hell is the rest of life, you know? So it's also that as I grew old, I've been living my utopias rather than just projecting myself into, so I know now that it's possible. So why wouldn't I show it? Before I used to show lack of opportunity. Now I want to show, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a process of light in a way, and of life also. So that's why I am trying not to disconnect it. It's not like this very cerebral thing, theoretical thing, or some form of uh, way to be, I don't know, uh, judgmental about the system or whatever. It's also, it's very warm. It's very, very warm. Mm. The sense of radical equality and equanimity between the characters, it feels really special in Petite Mama because... It's kind of this fantasy that every girl has of becoming friends with your mother. But that is never fully possible because your mother is always this paragon of femininity. She's who teaches you how to be a woman. And because of that, she's both an aspirational figure, but someone who also you resent a little bit. That's the kind of uh, the way, you know, society presents the mother-daughter relationship. There's always this hint of rivalry. There's always this trying to break away while also trying to become your mother. And in this film, mother and daughter meet as equals, as just friends, and they can learn from each other. You know, there's this relationship that feels free of these social ideas um, of, you know, learning womanhood and inheriting, you know, a, a way of being in the world. 
I was wondering if you could talk a little about that, even this idea of, you know, becoming friends with your mother. Like, uh, where did that come from? What a way to express it. Becoming friends with your mother. Where could that, how could you even? It seems banal, but it is, you know, the, it is the great fantasy yeah, like yeah. to play with your mother as equals that it's just so simple, but magical. Well, I, I think it's, um, once more, it's something that's cinema can happen and that both puts us in trouble. And that, that is also uh, a peaceful idea. So it's a great tension for the cinema, for cinema, I think. <laughs> um, but you know, when that idea struck me, I, I, I didn't feel it was an idea that I was just having. I didn't feel it was an idea of mine. It felt like uh, a myth. And it felt, of course, that it had been told several several times that it would be told, uh, that it was it must have been coming from a matriarchal uh, civilization that we were, you know, we weren't transmitted this myth. Uh, and I really decided that I would tell it, uh, treat it as a myth, which means tell it, tell my interpretation of the myth. And my interpretation wasn't really being friends with your mother; it was being sisters with your mother but it's and that's also why i cast it sister because i really there's no was really no hidden agenda in there but for instance when you see turning red you see that this mythology is also there and that when i saw the film i was like i was right to feel that this is very ancient and very contemporary too and that when a lot of women speak at the same time, then we realize that it is mythology because it is present in on, under different forms and under in, in, in different times, but also at the same moment. So, and the, the layer for me, the, the really, I didn't see it as a mother daughter thing. I was really seeing it as a uh, a grandmother and two daughters. It's really about the trio rather than this confrontation that we see in culture about mother daughter mother daughter and I I don't I don't feel connected to that I don't, I don't know if it's personal or if I'm just saying something that is not talked about I really feel part of a much bigger thread and and especially in my experience I mean it's not it's just what i've lived you know we have known my my two grandmothers for very long and and the fact that it's the kids when they see the film they are all about the grandmother they know the grandmother kind of becomes that that figure that's half in shadows in this film too and you can but you can imagine that chain of of time travel that would go back and back marion becoming going back to meet her mother as a child and onward and onward and how I don't know that it's a really uh, these these ideas all kind of grow organically out of what you said this very simple almost mythic idea that is the basis of the film. There is the the scene that really has stuck with me is when they're playing roles. You know, they're playing these uh, this little sort of detective crime story, and it's striking because first of all, it's a little example of how children do learn their roles from stories. You know, we're, we're watching reading stories and playing them and we learn our social roles from these stories, but also how 
when they do that, they have this sense of freedom where they can play any role. And just a mother and the daughter can play husband and wife and son and inspector. This uh, That I, I thought was um, maybe also the thread that connects this film to Portrait of a Lady for me, because both are films where it's completely conceivable for a world to be autonomous and sufficiently made up of just women. Like women can play all the roles. I was wondering if you could talk about that, that little play acting scene. Yeah, those are the scenes that I enjoy the most shooting in all my life, I think. I was really like the, the, the frame of Josephine uh, dressed as this little detective. So I think the, 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 my favorite image, and that's, really, and that's really stupid, but it's because I think it's like, it's exactly like the first image that I ever made because when I was a kid and I was nine, I was uh, I had the luck to have like this video camera and I did my first films and I, I would play that detective, you know, uh, and, and I fully remember how we would, as you described, play with the language, was the, the common language, all the archetypes, all the canon, but that that language would allow us to be very, very, uh, weird to mix everything up to switch the world to be whoever yeah to 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 change the balance of power so we would use the language of power the language of adults the language of culture but it would definitely become a way to rebel in a way and to 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 yeah to to, to trouble everything to trouble our gender to trouble uh, our power dynamics you know like the, the, the little brother will play the big villain, like, you know, and it's all this carnavalesque of fiction, all this uh, way fiction things don't, turns things around. It's, uh, that's the power of playing. That's why kids are so good at impersonating. Also, it's full opportunities, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that we should, it's not full opportunities for kids. It's full opportunities for, even for adults. It's just that then we stop doing that. And it's not true that it stopped, otherwise video games and online video games wouldn't be the leading popular of all the arts. Or we just settle into one role that we play for the, the remainder of our lives. You can have a lot of avatars. Right, that's true. <laughs> You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I know that this film is also to a certain extent autobiographical um, in terms of the setting. Can you talk a little bit about how you imagined this house where most of the movie takes place and how that comes out of your own grandparents' houses a little bit? And if I'm if I'm right, the cane is your grandmother's actual cane. Is that correct? And there are objects. Yeah, yeah I mean, that must have been very emotionally overwhelming too to work with those objects and, the, and like recreate something that is partly memory and partly fantasy well yes but you don't i didn't realize until you as it's work you know it's it, it's true it's true that for the first time the film is fueled with very accurate personal details the film was shot in studio so we built this house from scratch 
and I really designed it based on my two grandmothers interiors my the kitchen is my paternal grandmother's kitchen and the rest of the house is the flat of my maternal grandmother who had a cane who, who the character of the grandmother is based another on. little fantasy your two grandmothers like living, living in one home exactly the, the the photos i cherish the most in my life like the one where my two they are very rare obviously where my two grandmothers are together this is like an because you're definitely the, the kid of these two women you know mm. Um, and my mom and my maternal grandmother, she lived in a flat. Uh, and so that's why the circulation of this house is so weird. This very, very long corridor doesn't fit at all. And, and um, but um, I, I, and I, as I'm the costume designer of the film, there's also, yes, some props that are uh, a cane or even some uh, sweaters are, are, yeah, from my, uh, belong to my grandmother but the thing is uh as it's work you know uh, then everything becomes props also like that cane that I would be very you know it's she's dead it's that's part of my heritage it's one of the, the things I have from her would be really like <laughs> it's like when you're a kid and you play with your your parents clothes they become the clothes of the inspector not the not your parents, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it really did dramatize uh, things, but I could definitely feel for the first time. And they could definitely connect, uh, if even though that was that, that was not the dominant feeling, but to what it's like to actually tell your own story. Because I did it like took the film is like it's like five percent of the film, <laughs> but it felt like wow. Fully understand my colleagues who go all the way by <laughs> telling their must, but it's a whole other experience. Like I really, I just just tried it, and I was like, oh, "Okay, it's interesting," but it's a whole other feeling. It wasn't as if the the impetus, or there was like a an idea at the beginning where you're like, "I'm going to make an autobiographical vision of my childhood." That wasn't that wasn't where you're coming from. You're saying you're just kind of introducing elements. Exactly. Yeah, and it's it's um it's also because I wanted the film to be timeless, and I was obsessed by the fact that even though it was a time traveling film, it should be timeless regarding 50 years like between the 50s and today 70 years like when my mother was a kid to a kid from 2020 should believe that this world can host their childhood there's no technology other than the earphones yeah yeah every detail is like even the earphones everything you have and every anything to switch the light to switch the light to any you can find today or at mm -hmm. the time all the costumes there there's no vintage so with this obsession of creating a common space and time which is a, a form of time you know could be a definition of time traveling finding sharing a common space and time and that's how i kind of sold the riddle of how it's a time traveling film but i don't want a delorean i don't want a time paradox i don't want a, that conflict uh i want them to harvest this time i want them to be not to lose time i don't want the, the frustration from the audience to be backed up into a, an intrigue whether they just want to you know to taste this situation uh, so that it becomes familiar you know um so all the the the, the decisions we took whether it's lighting the sets the costumes the the we're about creating this common space and time for the characters and for the, the and between the the, yeah, the viewer and the film. 
Yeah, I love that there's no attempt to explain why this is happening or even an interest in explaining where it's coming from. It's you're completely just part of these part of this experience as a viewer. You're experiencing it like the children experience it. You just accept it. It's part of existence. It's normal almost <laughs> that this would happen. It's a it's it's a really uh, great choice. And I think it comes out of what you're saying, that fusing of time. Devika, you were gonna say something, sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask why you never considered using like special effects or something was there any point where you thought oh maybe the hut will be like a portal or I, I don't know um just since you said you you were thinking about Spielberg films and and these kinds of Hollywood films I just wondered if that ever crossed your mind uh for a long time we we everyone was asking how are we going to do the panther and I know it's the only thing where we were like, we're keeping a little money if we can't make it really happening with our little tools, then this will be, you know, maybe we won't succeed. And, but we did. <laughs> uh, because I was really, when I was writing the film and so also writing production of the film, like taking this decision to shoot in studio, whereas, you know, this film could be shot in any house. We build a whole house to watch Little Girl Eat Cereals, you know. But it was because I really felt I was doing this film like the, like the first film of cinema with exactly the same tools as uh, the pioneers of cinema. Film is magic realism, which is this genre, early genre created by you know, cinema with the tools of cinema that could create new kind of magic, ghost, apparition, inspiration, you know. Magic realism, studio, uh, not, not very talky. All the sentences, they could fit a cardboard, you know, they could, they could, they could be just, um, and it felt like, um, it wasn't a challenge, but it was challenging because uh, suddenly this idea of doing this panther, how how do you do it? For instance, you know the the, the fact that and everything. But I really wanted to create everything, including the soundtrack, because when you shoot in studio, so you lose. You know, you have to recreate the whole atmosphere of the house, and this very high level of intervention um, that you can have on creating, uh, yeah, the whole soundscape and 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 whole set and. It's, yeah, it's the level of, uh, of uh, intervention of the first film ever in cinema, in a way. And it's the level of belief uh, in these tools. And I really felt like, oh, this might be my last film, you know, in a way, traditionally. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to do it like it's the first film. Hmm. Why, is, why is that? Who knows? No, no, who knows? I think, you know, anyone who's doing cinema right now should really do films like it's their last. I, at least, you know, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt the films wouldn't hurt the people doing it. I mean, it's out of uh, out of care for cinema that I think that it's not because I think that it's over or that I want to quit. It's just like things are moving, you know. On um, that, having that type of release in the U.S., fully theatrical, you know, that's uh, who knows if this is going to happen after all we go through. So I thought maybe you were going to say like I'm done, I'm out. <laughs> maybe I'm. <laughs> Um, maybe I'm done under this one. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, no, don't say that. Please, yeah. Clint, why would you put this idea I, into, I thought we were the, get into the, the universe? Scoop. This was going to be a big <laughs> scoop on this. Um, no, touch wood. <laughs> we, yeah, touch. That scoop is not a good scoop. No, bad, bad scoop. Sorry. Yeah. 
I did want to ask about the music. You mentioned uh, the sound, the soundscape and the uh, sound design, but there's music too in this film and uh, the music of the future as, as Marion calls it. Lovely uh, line. <laughs> yeah. I love that scene. And then the music of the future is this song that you wrote the lyrics to. I believe it's called uh, Moncore. And it was uh, written in collaboration with um, the composer who did the rest of the soundtrack. Uh, Jean-Baptiste de Labier. Jean-Baptiste de Labier, yeah. Can you talk a little bit, like, how did how did you come to write the lyrics f- for that song and uh, what that collaboration, what was that collaboration like? Well, with Jean-Baptiste, he's been uh, doing the soundtrack to all my films and it's an ongoing dialogue that is, uh, he's also a director and I've, I've been writing for him uh, for years too when we have a special connection a childhood connection, even though we didn't meet as kids, but uh, I think we, he's my petite friend, you know, I could have met him as a kid. And um, so for this film, I'd like really wanted just one song. And I asked somebody for um, like the, the, the opening credit of a, a cartoon from our childhood that, that, that didn't exist. Um, but, um, and, and that would be very epic. because I really wanted this to be like an adventure scene that would be really, really emotional. And I wanted to be like super generous and, and that we would also work with the choir of, the, of kids. because I wanted also to, have, to collaborate with more kid artists, you know, and have singers. And, um, and he came up very early on with that beautiful melody and I really, really, loved and and then it was working trying to find different melody lines to 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 have the choir to sing and uh, and he said i think there should be lyrics and i think you should write it and i did write he already had said that in our collaboration for portrait of a lady on fire where it was like it has to be lyrics to the to the bonfire song and i as a joke i did this latin sentence that is now a lot of tattoos uh, <laughs> it's not that no it's not a joke but I mean I didn't feel like I was writing lyrics right it's it was just like one email it took five minutes I, I, I this time I really worked listening to all the melody the, the line the melodical lines that he had done and trying to find lyrics and it was I really really it was really a step for me in meeting the film because Suddenly you have to write a poem about your own film because I really wanted the lyrics to be two things. I wanted them to be strongly connected to the film, but I also wanted them to that wanted the song to 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 be like an anthem for something else. And that, for instance, if there would be a revolution with kids and animals doing protest in the streets, the song would fit. That it would be an, a political anthem for kids. Um, and so I decided to, to, as it was the music of the future, I decided to write the lyrics in the future tense. Uh, so the lyrics in English, they go, voices of kids will sing new dreams. And the film, so it was like this epic lyric for, for a song to be, but there was also this dynamic of trying to tell the truth about the film. And then suddenly this sentence came, le rêve d'être enfant avec toi which is the dream of being a child with you that could definitely be what you put on the mm-hmm. poster. Yeah. 
And, you know, music, when you do music in the film, it's always the most emotional moment for me, mostly because it's one when I'm not working. So I can be emotional because somebody's like, giving me this great gift. And, you know, we're always saying like cinema, like this, there's such this strong hierarchy and the director is the boss, especially, you know, in our countries where we have directors cut, we write our own films. So, but the time where I'm the most happy and feel the most happy to be a director is when another artist is just giving giving me their yeah their ideas you know just it's 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 collaborating is 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 it's like somebody's doing something for your film so it like it gives it gives birth to your film also because there's somebody else's language it's already somebody's already speaking their language and that it made me, it made me also speak the language of my film uh, as i was doing it I'm thinking of that moment in Portrait of a Lady when Eloise sees her own portrait. <laughs> Maybe it's like that, but if someone just really captured <laughs> captured you, right? Like I, I imagine that must kind of be what it's like to listen to a score made for your film that just tells you how to look at it in a new way. I also wanted to ask about that pyramid in the lake. That is such a striking image. Is that uh, what's the story of this of this setting? <laughs> This is more of a tourism question. No, but it's a good question because the film is, is also personal because it was shot in my hometown. So all the exteriors, which is the wood and the lake, they are where I grew up. And, you know, I used to build my own tree houses in those hoods. And, and this pyramid is an actual piece of art that is just sitting there mysteriously in this artificial lake because that city was born at the beginning of the 70s. It's, it's, and I grew up in a city that was fully new, which is pretty rare, especially in France. This is, you know, there's always all stone. Yeah. Mm. So it is a utopian. It is sort of like a, a, planned, a planned community in some way. Yes. And it was designed thinking about very young family, pioneers, people. So nobody came from here, you know, which is also pretty rare. And it was built thinking of very young people with kids. So the city was built for kids to live freely in it, which means that it was built on two levels. And you could, as a kid, you could go by the whole city without meeting any street or any car, any road or any car. And of course, a city that would be utopia would include art <laughs> and its design and its public spaces. And this pyramid has always been there. <laughs> and I mean, since, since I think since the eighties and I'd never been inside. You know, so that's why I chose this town. I chose this town because this, it has this incredible set. And also, and the woods, they are less spectacular. And we had to add a lot, a lot of leaves coming from elsewhere to get those great colors. But uh, I chose these woods. So you did have special effects. Yes. Like fake leaves. <laughs> yeah, but that's, no, it's real leaves, but coming from another wood. Oh, okay. <laughs> Only the botanists yeah. will catch that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> But at least, you know, since it was the difficulty with the film was also to, to draw this imaginary road from present to past to you know, all, all the films are always some kind of cartography of map that you have to draw and to build imaginary paths, very theoretical path like that. It's easier to do it in a place you know very well, especially in your place where you used to say like, OK, on this side, it's, uh, you know, where you used to play with kids and, and do this whole new mapping of the world. So it was fun to actually do, do it in this very modest forest. 
So we have time for just one question. And I wanted to ask about some other artists in your film, uh, the actresses, the two sisters, the Sands sisters, who are just remarkable. I mean, some of the, uh, definitely the best performances of the year. And they just embody everything that we've been talking about sort of in a cerebral technical way, they embody very organically. So if you could talk about casting them and the process of uh, maybe like how you explained the movie to them, but what they brought to it maybe that surprised you? Well, the process of casting was quite simple. I just met them for several reasons. First, we just put an ad saying I was looking for sisters and that sisters was born on the same day were welcome. And they answered and my casting director met them and said, I think, I think you should meet them. And, you know, I, I tend to do very small castings. Like on this film, I just so, I tend to trust my casting director a lot. You know, it's our fifth film together. Uh, I, tr I trust my DP with lighting. I trust my casting director with casting. So I just saw like for each part, I saw just one person. <laughs> it was... Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 and for the kids, she saw 12 kids. And we met them, and the minute they were walking towards me, you see how they walk. I was right. like, oh, this is, this is going to be great. That walk of the, okay, I, girl, yeah. the, the little girl is incredible. It's distinctive. Very. Yeah. And what we did is that um, I offered them the part. Then we read the script. They said they wanted to do it. We didn't, I just heard them read the script already felt, you know, we really make it flat. It's, it's nine-year-olds reading this film, but we all read it, and it felt... <sighs> felt already very emotional. And I was like, okay, that's it. We didn't rehearse. They, they said they wanted to do the film. We didn't rehearse. I, we did the camera ISS with them. So we would have, you know, we would definitely start looking at them. And as I'm the costume designer of film, I started dressing, you know, dressing them and, and building the characters through their clothes. Um, and then we just shot the film and, you know, I don't really believe in rehearsing, especially with kids who don't know cinema, because then it's going to be 14 people in the camera, so you're not really rehearsing, you know. And also because I think it's, uh, it's not weird to ask a kid to play. It shouldn't be, you shouldn't put too much pressure on that. The fact that, you know, I didn't test them, I didn't, didn't have to compete with anyone, the fact that it's like, it's going to be okay. I think it's the first big gesture of, of the relationship of what directing them meant also. It was also being fully confident that this would be okay without having ever tried. Then, well, the difficulty is that they have to learn the job. So, but this goes really fast. I mean, really like if anyone wants to make films, of, of course, if you have, you know, you have lucky enough to enter a public school or something that doesn't cost so much, it's, you should do it. It's great to learn. It's great to experiment. It's great to meet your generation, but Anything you have to learn about a set, you can learn like in a five day, just observing things, you know, just don't also, it's, 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 it's very materialistic. It's, uh, so they learn anything about language, the language of cinema in a, in a day, you know, tracking shot, I did this work, every, all the protocols, and then starts the work when you, well, you invent the language of the film together, which is what they bring, what you bring, what, what, what it means talking together. And well, on this film, the story was really, really clear to them. It's really, it's a very simple story for a kid. Each time, and I'm always telling like, I'm never hiding anything. Like the fact that 
I'm always giving them the full perspective I have on the scenes. And they would never forget who was who, what to do. You know, they were really, really serious, really committed to the story. <laughs> and as we were shooting in studio also, that's also why I wanted that, because designing your studio, of course, is designing the image, the background, the, the atmosphere, but it's also designing the groove of your film because that corridor, you pick the length of it, so that tracking shot, going at that pace, following a nine-year-old, she could do like 12 steps, 18, you know, it's the groove. So suddenly all of these scenes, they are shot in this house, so the rhythm of the set, the rhythm of the house, you know, it all start to become organic. So at first I really gave them bits, like even for dialogues, like hold it in your head for three seconds, you know, it's really about finding the groove and then at some point, they speak the language of the film. You don't have to say anything anymore <laughs> that, you know, unless you, you want to add an idea. Otherwise, it's... Uh, and it's... You can really definitely feel... I really felt like a frontier moment where, you know, she, she knew, she, she fully knew what to do, how to speak, uh, yeah, the body of the character. Um, and that's the beauty of working with children. It's also that you watch them do everything for the first time because, you know, kids, they have very, very few autonomy. <laughs> so the, for the first time, they were pouring hot milk. For the first time, they were doing all these things. That's also what they bring. They bring their courage because, you know, doing that for the first time is not easy, especially when you're being looked at. They pretend that they knew how to do everything. So I think that's the best definition of an actor. So they did. Well, thank you so much for your time, Celine, uh, and, and for this film. It's a very moving work, and uh, we can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you so much. And it was great to, great to discover more things about it with you, so thank you. Thank you. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.